everyone, and welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a podcast for SaaS marketers and product people. Our awesome guest today is David Sepulveda, head of data at Kumo Space, and we're going to talk about data activation for SaaS. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userless.com. Hi, David. Hi, Jane. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to learn from you on this wonderful hot topic. But before that, can you give us a short background story? Because you have a pretty fascinating way of coming from finance into the data space. Absolutely. So my background is actually management information systems, somewhat a technical field. Uh, however, as I was getting closer to graduation, I, I was getting very curious about finance. You know, I was determined to find out what makes a business successful, what makes successful businesses. So I became a financial analyst and I literally spent the next nine years analyzing financial statements, evaluating investment projects, until eventually I realized that I missed tech. That's when I moved to San Francisco and I got into analytics and data science. So I I think of my job as doing fundamentally the same goal, which is achieving impact for a business. But you can think of it as now working with much more fun data, right? Lower level data of all shapes and sizes. Tell us more about your current company, Kumo Space, where you serve as a member of a team. You've just raised 21 million Series A. Congrats on that. What does the product look like and what does the team look like? Yeah, we're a Series A company. We're very excited to be in a space where what keeps us going is seeing the impact that we have on people. You know, Kumo Space is what we believe the best approach to offering teams a place to collaborate and thrive online. The fact of our fundraising reflects that, you know, investors in the market believes that there's a problem to solve. And based on the feedback we get from our users, Jane, we believe we're in the right. Okay. What does Kumo Space do? Absolutely. Kumo Space is a virtual office product. Think of for folks who are already working remote, both beforehand after the pandemic. What we are hearing is about Zoom fatigue, right? People are tired of having to hop through multiple screens just to be able to talk to their colleagues. And what Kumo Space provides, it's easy, frictionless, and I will add even fun collaboration. Think of for folks who are at home or working by themselves in a different city. What Kumo Space allows them is to feel their back at an office. I would say you keep the good things and you leave some of the bad things of being at an office, right? We hear from users that instead of having to schedule a 30-minute meeting to ask a quick, you know, sanity point or sanity checkpoint to your colleague, you literally walk to them in their virtual office. You get a sense of what they're doing. You get a sense if they're busy. And it just becomes like natural, right? So you were data hire number one on the team. And I'm wondering whether you qualify yourself as a B2B or a B2C SaaS, probably B2B, but still a lot of working with the end user and their activity, right? Not just like business entity, but lots of indeed individual users to observe as part of this. So that's a great observation. We are B2B in the sense that 
it is businesses of many sizes and teams of different sizes who realize they have a need and then come to us to explore our product. The reality is that we depend on end, end users and teammates loving our product. And they are our, obviously our main audience. You know, being in user experience, Jane, and working with SaaS business models, you realize that it's showing something for them that makes them excited about coming back to the product every day, excited about asking their colleagues in case they're not there to work with them in common space. So when you joined the team, what did the data culture look like and what you were able to bring in and the, as the first data scientist on the team? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I love saying that I was fortunate to join a team that a had the foresight to know that they wanted to hire a data person fairly early in that process. And B, they invested significant resources in building out what we analysts call instrumentation, right? Analytics instrumentation. This is, they generated very interesting data even before I joined, so that when I joined earlier this year, I already had a lot of fun stuff to work with, right? We were able to reduce the time that it takes us to understand what is what are the most popular parts of the product, right? What things we can improve? How is the journey? How is the user journey when someone wants to evaluate the product? So that's why I say I was fortunate. Early on, we knew that our top priority when having all this incredible data was to make the user experience even better, right? And this is where fairly early on, we settled on launching a data activation project. For your listeners who are new at marketing, if there are any, tell us more what data activation is. I love how market, the market and marketing comes up with these new terms. To some of us somewhat older technical folks, data activation is simply enabling data that traditionally is kept in a data warehouse, allow that data to be used in any part of the business that benefits from it. So to give you an example, the traditional analytics model has the raw data generated by the product. Think your website, think your product, your SaaS product, for example. Then a data warehouse that transforms the data, generates useful indicators, metrics, hopefully a lot of insights. And historically, the journey stopped there. What newer tools and more modern approaches to using that data and taking advantage of that data is now sending it to other platforms. For example, even your CRM. For example, email communication platforms, like potentially yours and other tools that allow teams to create agile campaigns for their user base. So to give you an example, we may know in our data warehouse that a user tried to use certain features or in the case of our virtual offices, change the layout of their office, right? Because that's, that's what our product allows. With this data activation, we can detect if a user struggled or struggled to set up certain layout in their office. And then our customer success team can reach out based on that information. And that's what data activation allows us to do. They're usually at least two problems. One is deciding what you need, and that is based on customer needs and what, et cetera. And second is understanding how, and well, I guess number three is implementing it. In your case, this what to do, does it come from you or is there a product manager or somebody else on the team initiating any of those activation points? We learned fairly on that 
for this type of projects, especially those who directly affect the user experience, we benefit from having a centralized vision. In fact, recently we, <laughs> we gave the ownership of this project to our product manager, to our head of product. Why? Because there are multiple teams that want to use tools like this. We, for example, use customer IO. And so the need is there. Being the head of data, my role is to support them, right? They are the creative masterminders of campaigns, copy, design. And I, of course, support them with data. But someone needs to be able to step back and plan the vision for the entire journey. And this is where a head of product comes in. So to answer your first question, what to do, we allow her team to determine these are the interactions that we will allow. In other words, who engages with the user and how, with what frequency and what message. And then everyone else just works together to get that vision coming to fruition, so to speak. In terms of technical implementation, how does it work? This is just the raw data funneled into specific tools that do all the processing calculation and then allow to produce the final like touch point, send that email, send that message, do like send that notification somewhere. Or is this something that's done all inside your system and then the final touch points are merely like API for delivering it? It's a bit of bit of both. Part of the reason a, a data person generally warms up to the idea of activation is that the logic that does the transformation, calculating KPIs or calculating metrics, lives inside the data warehouse logic. In our case, we use DBT. All our logic is version controlled, right? So that if I make a mistake, I can quickly roll it back. So the logic stays there. And then we literally curate what data from the data warehouse will be sent to other parts of our tech stack. And as you can imagine, the process is very controlled. So it gives peace of mind to everyone. In my case, if I'm the responsible person to generate a metric, like if I am the responsible person to determine how many minutes a user was present here or there, I want to make sure 200% of the data is accurate. So I do that by keeping that logic inside the data warehouse. Then there's a second step. We will decide together what data to send to the other platforms. And it's not only about opening the faucet and letting all the data flow because there are cost implications to that, right? There's efficiency. You know, there's the unglamorous side of the business, right? We have constraints. So by doing this curation, we can make sure that only the highest quality data and the most potentially impactful data is sent around. Tell us more where segmentation happens because it is so vastly different how teams approach it. For example, some of our customers prefer to, like UserList allows for external segments with the other tools like analytics. For example, we can just sync external segments from Amplitude or Heap. So we, we would only work with the, with the already segmented base and would base automations based on that some the massive amount of users just sends raw data to us not not so raw but like uh, whatever metrics they consider necessary for email automation they just send to us and we process them and make behavior driven segments in your case in your setup where does segmentation happen and from your experience what happens in other companies is it your choice or is it uh, like the best choice great question segmentation plays a huge role we're literally approached by users having a need to collaborate and meet other people of different types. 
we have different use cases, just like we offer the possibility of working full-time from Kumo Space. Some companies use us for events, and that's a possibility. And we also have a very friendly free offering for friends, friends and family, right? People who just want to stay connected. Therefore, as you can imagine, correctly identifying the use case make, can make a large difference in the success of any campaign. So to your point, this use case information is, I don't want to over use the word use, but it's utilized in the data warehouse calculation, right? In other words, if I'm thinking of a campaign that I want to communicate with the sponsor or the office manager of a company wanting to set up the virtual office, I want to make sure they have the right use case, the right segment, the right persona. And that guides me when determining what data to make available. Does that make sense? It definitely does. We've broken so many swords trying to switch people from thinking about segments from just use cases towards use cases plus their lifecycle stage. Because when we talk about orchestrating the experience, their stage in the lifetime experience matters equally much, if not more. How do you do both? It sounds like it's a grid of, of use cases and where they are. Are they trialing? Are they uh, successfully activated? Are they paying customer? Another thing we discovered as you know, evolving and identifying our critical moments in the life of a user is realizing that since we are predominantly a sync platform, right? It's a sync product and that's our vision, right? We can be more agile if we talk to each other more often instead of only sending an offline message. And, and that's our, our pitch. What we also learn is that when you get to know our product, think of it in the early evaluation stage, it makes a big difference if you try to evaluate Comospace on your own or if you invite friends or colleagues or someone to check it out with you. That was one of the findings we achieved using, using this data. Therefore, going back to your point about this matrix, right? We have the segment and we have a where in the journey they are. So another thing we are trying to make it as easy as possible for our users is, hey, you're checking out um, Kumo Space. Invite some folks, right? Early in the process. And that way you, you get to experience what we call not only the productivity features, but that joy features, right? You can listen to music together. You can uh, eat a donut or pour yourself a drink. And it's a combination of those, what honestly we feel strongly that is the magic about Kumo Space. To answer the question, we use the data to know how and when to communicate with users. But do you care about their stage or do you care about specific events? So like, let's imagine you wanna, basically, do you care about specific points in their journey or do you care about the journey in general more like is your automation more granular like you never know what happens first and what happens next or is it more orchestrated it's a combination but it's definitely a sequence right if we had to identify some stages you know the first day has certain importance the first week has another importance and then the rest of the first month right and it helps a lot to remind ourselves that the main purpose of an office is to be there every day, potentially, mostly weekdays. So we organize our, quote, analytical mindset to work around that, right? People have some weekly meetings. People have some monthly meetings. So we're able to identify that, and it guides our, our analysis and our campaigns, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. 
are you allowed to share your um, metrics system, metrics pyramid? I don't know what it's called. What are your primary success metrics at Kumo Space? Uh, the ones you are tracking, and uh, I don't know, do you have a North Star one? If you're allowed to disclose that, we have some that are fairly, you know, expected. In our world, each account is a, a space, right? That's what we call our accounts, and then each space has users, right? So there's some sort of sweeter spots as the number of users go goes up. Those are some reasonable metrics. Then the, the second layer, so to speak, is that activity that happens earlier in the space creation timeline, right? And then once users are invited, how well are they getting to know the product? And this can take many, many shapes, right? I hope you get to, to check out our product sometime. You will see it's very feature rich because it is a product that allows you to not only have video chats with each other, chat, show your status, but also share your screen, also share pointers. And I could talk for too long about them. So you can imagine that the way we, we measure that takes many layers deep, if that makes sense. What's your personal approach to analytics? Do you prefer to measure like every mouse movement and click, sort of speaking, or are you a fan of more high-level stuff? Because there are definitely people who belong to both schools. Let's say... Heap analytics measures everything and you can measure like five top metrics in amplitude and will be fine, most likely, because you only need five, to be honest, in order to activate them. What's your philosophy? It's, it's highly curated. Um, so I'm more on the former, I believe you said it first. We believe in identifying intent and success, right? So it means definitely a big eye on reliability. So we have mm -hmm. invested in making the experience ever better. And we have dedicated engineers to make the product better, like every, in every um, delivery cycle. So to answer your point, no, we don't do that super granular tracking. We believe that there's so much information to gather from intent, like, like the features that I described, right? Are you trying to work or is it also uh, share documents, et cetera, or links, or do, do you simply need a break, right? So it's that healthy combination of both that, in my opinion, is the definition of success. Do you have a way of tying like business goals to certain product usage metrics, user value metrics, uh, anything like that, that guides the work of your entire team, including product team and analytics team? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I would say that's where our product is falls squarely into a SaaS product. You can imagine healthy activation, you know, uh, in the middle of the funnel and then a healthy retention, you know, month to month has, <laughs> has a, you're that, just that, like, uh, everybody wants to be healthy, <laughs> happy and wise, but like we want <laughs> specifics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have some metrics around the number of users. And I think to answer your question, perhaps more objectively is the time that they spend in the platform for us, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the most correlated indicator with coming back to more. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's literally the hours that you spend. Why? Because part of the ways we're trying to fight Zoom fatigue is not switching between four different platforms per hour, right? So we, when you are presented with a single screen where you're able to do most of your work and interact with your colleagues, then that's a strong indicator. So it's, it's time, it's increasing usage of the features, right? And that's why we, we have a 
burgeoning experimentation program where we give our, literally everyone in the company can come to us and propose an experiment, an improvement in the feature, uh, a new feature. And that's what I love. You know, we move fast and it's one of our values, in fact. Do you have any favorite tips and recommendations on how to make a difference between correlation and causation in your like product analytics? Maybe your personal opinion on this. Yeah, there will always be that natural battle. You know, we we like to prioritize speed. So we do get a lot of inspiration from seeing strong inflection points in certain metrics, right? That associate or are directly correlated with an increase in retention. However, I always include the healthy disclaimer when sharing that, right? I think that when, when a company is small enough to move fast enough, the gain of pursuing a test based on those findings. For example, if a user is showing a much stronger retention when the usage of certain feature goes from X to Y, you know, imagine from one to two in, in certain time period. If we see a strong enough uh, improvement in retention, in my opinion, we're better off as a company to be very fast in attempting to target that through a campaign, through a feature change, than just waiting and doing another prediction model, which don't get me wrong, I would love to spend more time doing that. But that's when I think a lot of data scientists allow their, their heart to, to win, right? Just because we would like to deploy a more sophisticated tool. And at the end of the day, the tool has to remain a tool. And I can do the models that I want to build on the weekend if I need to, but I feel better off if I live for the weekend having shared an actionable, actionable suggestion to my product team. And, and that includes evidence that certain feature usage has a strong inflection line at a certain point. As a data scientist, what are your favorite resources for learning about the industry? And I'm asking primarily for our listeners who might be new and want to get started with data activation and data science in general. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of the words data science, the medium source. And I'm, I'm fortunate to, being based in San Francisco, I'm fortunate to be there near the SF Python group. You know, I love meetups. I, uh, meetups were an incredible way for me to connect with the Bay Area scene. Scene when I moved, uh, you know, I didn't know folks or anyone. I just decided it's time to move to San Francisco. So I'm fortunate to have that. And then, of course, the companies that I've worked at in the past, it's part of, of that analytics family, right? That we stay connected and we exchange happenings in our world. That's a very insider way to explain like how you get better, like an outsider or a young, you know, analyst, what, what can they do to learn? <laughs> to be honest, those meetups, when you start attending them and see topics that are completely new to you, you may realize, or you may think at the time, okay, I had no idea what this was about. But then a month later, you may be in an interview and someone mentions it and you are able to simply explain how you learn something by attending, right? So between meetups and resources, and I think nowadays there's really no excuse, no no rational excuse to not go deep simply because of the Udemy and Coursera's of the world. What would be your one do and one don't when it comes to setting up a practice for data activation. 
in a specific startup? Absolutely. I feel that the earlier stage, the startup, the biggest don't is don't aim for per- perfection. In fact, <laughs> the name of your podcast resonated tremendously. Uh, you know, at, at Intercom, we swore by the cupcake philosophy, right? Which is not an MVP, but is start small and sweet, a usable, productive deliverable that you know can get better through time and eventually will be a three-layer cake. But you start with something that gives value as fast as possible. So when you're a perfectionist or when simply people in data who get nervous when two uh, numbers don't match, um, you want to believe that you, it's okay to triple check it or to plan for the future. So my advice there is don't strive for perfection if you're in an earlier startup and focus on speed and value. Amazing. Totally escaped my attention that you worked at Intercom. That's like another slice of questions. <laughs> I'm curious what, because it's a pretty massive industry leader and you can like specifically take away philosophies from working there. And you just mentioned the cupcake approach. Any other interesting approaches that you've, you know, borrowed and incorporated, integrated uh, throughout your journey? I don't know if I, I, I should use that as that do, but uh, it's, it's still just as memorable. I love the close collaboration of what um, the research and data science teams had with product. We were able to show like a, a beautiful partnership, right? We stay aligned incredibly intimately with what the roadmap was looking like. And basically, the more an analytics of stakeholder or partner gets embedded or aware of what the roadmap is coming up for product, the more we can anticipate. So remember that push versus pull waltz that I talked about earlier? Ideally, we want an analytics team or a data team to start adding more out of their own observations, right? We want that to be a healthy, not a strong, a fixed percentage, but a healthy balance. And I think the, the more we know about our stakeholders, again, what keeps them up at night, the better. There's plenty of qualitative information product managers have. Feature requests are their things. And what happens if their research and feature requests say one thing and then the data says the other thing? Like, what do you go with? That is a really good question, just as challenging. I believe at this point, you have to treat anyone's time as a portfolio, right? You have to allocate some time to more conservative projects but you have to allow for some percentage for a more aggressive, think VC type investments. And where I'm trying to get to is those are the ones that may not be backed by science, but you're able to gamble to some degree because let's face it, there are a lot of product minded people with strong gut uh, intuition and they may be worth it, right? It doesn't mean that I would block, just to give you an idea, uh, in NF. Three analyst team, I would not block two folks working one month on something that is not backed with at least some preliminary data. But you can have a counter to that, which is what's the smallest cupcake you could do if I let you do that? Or And, and that applies to a product team as well. One more question related to collaboration between those departments and marketing, because we spent a great deal of time convinced that product emails are mostly managed by the product department, only to learn that in many, many companies, the actual target 
audience for us is the marketer who works on the emails. And it's it's amazing because the, the product manager manages the journey and then there comes the marketer, well-equipped or not so well-equipped with what's happening and, it's, and also equipped or less so equipped with uh, data science knowledge because data is the foundation for email. How do you imagine the ideal collaboration between all three? It's a great topic, literally based on a recent um, change with it. Uh, at Kumo Space, we want those issues to be minimized. We want folks to see these platforms as available tools, but we want the vision to be unified. Therefore, because most of our KPIs and OKRs in terms of growth and, and product um, account growth fall on product, we decided that it was the most fair to give that ownership to product because it has to be, in our opinion, a, a coalesced, a unified vision of the touch points with the user. So to address your question directly, yes, marketing has a lot of needs and ideas to interact with the user on those campaigns, but putting it in better words, it has to be aligned and to fit nicely, to play nicely with products plans. So I'm very glad you asked that question because yes, it brings more people to the kitchen, so to speak, but there's no reason why we can't get in a room and think holistically about what will happen if we launch this new campaign. I also love that in your question, you included, but what about the data that marketing may have in smaller companies like ours, where you know there's myself having as a stakeholders, both product marketing and sales. It's also easy for me to provide supporting data to all of them. So if marketing wants to propose a modification to those campaigns or the user experience, well, they better partner with me to gather some data that supports their point. And then product will do the same. And guess what? In this case, David will happily provide them with data, supporting data. And I will bring my own opinion. So poor, poor them, because David also has opinions on that, right? But let's say user activation is a metric. It's obviously important for the business and uh, product can affect that metric, can influence that metric and also marketing so-called product marketing can also have that like mission to impact that metric. Who is the ultimate owner of this impact or like who owns the project of uh, email communications, let's say? Another great question. And we, in uh, our company, we solve it by concluding that product marketing lies and lives on the product. Yes. And, and, you know, I've seen different things across the years and across company sizes. I feel that as companies grow larger and departments grow larger, there's more need to put the marketings together. I believe that there's tremendous like strategic value in making sure that product marketing is as close as possible, living next to, you know, wall to wall, because the messaging has to be coherent. You know, who builds the features? Product builds the features. So how we market them, I believe product has to have at least direct input into that process. So in the ideal world, the marketing department works with leads. And then uh, once the lead becomes a customer, it's another set of people who live in the product department. That's correct. And I would add a follow-up to that. If part of your sales process includes, you know, a sales assisted or some sales involvement, they will also have a need, but they take over when the right time arises, right? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, we totally didn't mention customer success, did we? That also can be automated. <laughs> Absolutely. And we we welcome them to the to the hut, you know, to the yes. holistic customer view hut. <laughs> Yes. Amazing. Well, I'm glad we were able to dive into this uh, can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your wisdom today. Uh, where can people find uh, Kumo Space and where can they find you personally online? Absolutely. Our website is kumospace.com with a K. Uh, and I love sharing that Kumo means cloud in Japanese. And you can find me on LinkedIn as David Sepulveda. And in uh, a Twitter, David, BLBD. I love hearing from folks uh, experiencing remote work or working from home. You know, it's our mission to make it as easy as possible to thrive online. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Amazing. Well, thanks again, David, and have a wonderful rest of your week. You too, Jane. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can find a written recap for this episode at userless.com slash podcast. Please help us grow by leaving your review on iTunes.